Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. Right on two minutes past nine, you are tuned to 102.73 triple R. Maybe you're listening by rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Farm Charco. How Hi, everyone. Fun? Good, thank you. We're all laughing here because uh, we just had a nice little adrenaline rush before we started. We've had a couple this morning. <laughs> the things to do today went on at 8.53. What? <laughs> there must be a lot on today. Oh, I love Sundays. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think it was Edith doing things to do today. Yes, it was. Thank you, Ken. And uh, thank you, Tim, very much for uh, his sixth hour of Vital Bits, three hours this morning, of course. And um, thank you, Andrew, for Soulful Bits. Uh, and you can catch Tim next Saturday morning at 6am and Sunday for, uh, for more Vital Bits to kickstart your weekend days. Oh, it was beautiful. Really like nice, chill, folky kind of vibe this morning. I was really digging it. Yeah, me too. All right, big show, massive show. Uh, shortly we're going to be joined by Dave Donnelly. We caught up with Dave last week to talk about whales, whale tales, I'm calling his segment. And uh, we, we ran a bit short of time. We had a few things that we wanted to talk about, so we're going to catch up with Dave again. He's taking part today in... Uh, a whale census for a group called Orca, which has two R's in it. And so we're going to ask Dave about what Orca is uh, and pick up where we left off last week about the start of the whale watching season and some really interesting research into bubble net feeding in humpback whales. Awesome. Yeah, I've been reading up on it. It's fascinating phenomenon and Dave has co-authored a paper on it. So looking forward to talking to him about that. Then we are going to speak with Jackie Younger about the spider crabs or lack thereof. Fum, it's looking a little worrying. I know. It's really amazing because a full moon was there on Friday 25th. So, yeah, we'll see if Jackie has spotted any. Mm. Been watching the socials. It's not looking good. There's no. sort of a random one popping up here and there, but that mass yeah, aggregation. Yeah, but that, that always happens, you know. But yeah, uh, yeah no, we, we haven't seen them come into the shallows yet, which is uh, mysterious. Yeah, very mysterious. Then we are crossing to Antarctica, to Casey Station. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. <laughs> to uh, to speak with Cliff Davis, our Antarctic correspondent and Triple R's most remote subscriber. Um, very exciting. And we're also going to be speaking with Maddie Ovens. So Maddie is down there part of the crew. Uh, she has a very special role down there as the senior field training officer. Um, I had a chat with Maddie during the week about her role um, and so she's going to talk to us a little bit about that but also an initiation she took part in during the week <laughs> to celebrate midwinter and midwinter is a big deal in Antarctica because of course you know you, there's no of, sunlight no yeah. and it dwarfs the idea of hump day on wednesday when you kind of look at what midwinter means to um to the winterers down in antarctica so really looking forward to catching up with them then we're going to be uh, treated to some live music by mal webb and kylie morrigan um we played a track of mal and kylie's last week and um they've got a few gigs around town at the moment so they're going to join us virtually for a live performance always a treat yes and then some news to close the show farm yeah we'll see if we'll make it there though <laughs> sounds like a pretty full show it's a it's a very big show but yeah a few bits and pieces going on in the news 
Let's start with some weather. Weather for today. today. Sunday, 27th of June. Uh, Melbourne's got a top of top of 15 today. It's, it's really quite similar all over the state. So Geelong and Surf Coast and Mornington Peninsula, everybody's getting a top of 15. Uh, in the Melbourne area, it's partly cloudy with a medium chance of showers in the eastern suburbs, um, grading down to a slight 20% chance in the west. Winds are westerly, 15 to 20 k's an hour and um, becoming a lighter. And it's very similar for the Surf Coast and Geelong today. Uh, Mornington Peninsula is a little bit more rainy but uh, same thing winds west to southwesterly 15 to 25 k's an hour and becoming light in the afternoon now if you're located in central gippsland and east gippsland you do have a strong wind warning so be careful before you go out diving or on your boat uh, tides, Port Phillip Heads, the next high is 2.11 p.m. The next low will be at 7.30 p.m. And for Beaumaris, if you want to go for a nice and chilly snorkel in the north of the bay, the next low is at uh, 10.32 a.m. And the next high will be at 5.30 p.m. today. Thanks, Farm. No worries. Lots, lots going on today. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're listening from Sydney our, or anywhere in New South Wales... Our hearts are with you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just wanted to get that one in there because we know we have subscribers all over New South Wales. So, yeah. Look, we know how it feels, guys. Hang in there. Yeah, You'll get through this. What do you say after that? Let's dive into some news, shall we? Thanks, Thanks. (laughs) So um, I was supposed to read this out two weeks ago and I still – I held on to it because we didn't have time. Um, But I held on to this because it's just such a fascinating thing here. Uh, So this is from the ABC Science and it was published on the 4th of June. Um, So Dr. Elizabeth Siebert of Yale University's Institutes for Biospheric Sciences discovered lately that tiny shark and fish – Fish fossils collected from the bottom of the ocean showed that sharks ruled the oceans for some 40 million years, and we knew this, uh, and their numbers used to be 10 times higher than they are today, which is also a known thing. But what happened when she was looking through the records was that all of a sudden they vanished. Just, yeah, a 90% reduction in shark numbers pretty much overnight. Um, And there were no signs of sudden climactic or environmental changes. Um, Fish numbers seem to be the same in other species. Uh, And she knows that because she was looking at microfossils in deep sea sediment cores. um, And and she compared the frequency of those fish microfossils to the shark microfossils over time. And the shark microfossils, they're they're in the form of those uh, what we call dermal denticles, which are kind of like the tiny plate-like scales that sharks are covered with and that feel really like sand papery when you touch a shark Um, so she was looking at those and before 19 million years ago the researchers found that one shark fossil equated to sort of like five fish fossils so that was a ratio and that was indicating the ocean was completely teeming with sharks obviously but after that point they counted just one shark fossil per hundred fish fossils all of a sudden Um, so after thriving for about 40 million years shark numbers fell by 90 percent and that was that's up till now the biggest extinction that sharks have ever seen and we were completely oblivious to this until a few weeks ago um and this event was twice as impactful on sharks as the mass extinction that killed the dinosaurs Mm. 66 million years ago um yeah, so that's really amazing and very, very mysterious. Um, and we still know that now, since then, global shark populations have not recovered from that die-off. And this is million, you know, 19 million years later, we're still feeling or seeing the effects of that mass die-off. Um, and we're only seeing a tiny, tiny fraction of the diversity of sharks that we once knew. Um, so yeah, it gives us a lot of insight about how populations recover, especially when you're talking about top predators in the system, because they're super important. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, it's really, really interesting research. And it came out, it was actually very timely because around the same time, the journal Nature reported a study that estimated that sharks' populations have dropped by 71% in the last five decades again, <sighs> but this time overfishing being the main, main culprit yeah, of that. Because of course it wasn't, wouldn't have been that last time. No. So uh, yeah, something to uh, to think about, hey? So it's a big mystery there. Um, and it, I guess it kind of just really hits home that they're in decline again and 71%, you know, like what's going to happen when we don't have sharks left in the ocean? Yeah. It's going to take a long time to recover. I'd love to know if, and, I, and there's no way of knowing this, of course, because we're purely relying on fossil record, but whether um, there was a similar decline in rays, other cartilaginous fish. Yeah. Is it something to do with the cartilage component yeah. of their... So she looked at, um, she, she, you know, she questions like, you know, was there like a competition where they outcompeted by another predator or something like that? But definitely not by whales, tuna or seabirds because <laughs> those groups didn't appear until around 5 million years ago. Mm. You know, so there was definitely no competition there. Um, so up till now, it's a mystery. Yeah. A mystery. Thanks, Mum. No that is an excellent paper. Oh, I know. It's so exciting. Maybe we uh, need to get Ben Francischelli on the show <gasps> and yes. uh, ask him about this because yeah. uh, he might have some ideas. I reckon he will, Our, for sure. Uh, resident um, paleontologist. Done. That's on my list of things to do. Mm. Nine ten coming up to 9-11, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Now, last weekend we caught up with Dave Donnelly to talk about the start of the 2021 whale migration season. We promised to not leave it so long between drinks to catch up with Dave again, so we figured a week was soon enough. Um, Dave Donnelly, are you there? Good morning. Good morning, Bron. Good morning, Farm. Hi, and that what a beautiful choice of song. Was that a coincidence or was that purposeful? <laughs> oh, nicely done. <laughs> He's oh. going to open a can of fan worms there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very good. Now, um, we had originally anticipated to be talking to you about being uh, live on location for Orca, um, and I know just because we chatted before that you're going out this afternoon. Let's talk about Orca to start with. Um, what, what is Orca? Uh, well, Orca is the organisation for the rescue and research of cetaceans in Australia. They're based in New South Wales and they are kind of, uh, I guess, the team leader in terms of uh, whale stranding response on the mainland in Australia. Uh, they do a great job out of there and uh, right across the uh, east coast of Australia, we all sort of team up and contribute to Orca's Whale Census Day, which is today. So Orca's Whale Census Day, what's, uh, what does, what's that going to involve? Um, it's really just a snapshot. Um, it's as many people who want to go out to headlands and count whales for as long as they want using the data sheets provided by ORCA. Those pieces of information, those data sheets are returned to ORCA. A quick analysis is done and they can get a snapshot of whale movements over the course of a sort of a 10, 12 hour period on this particular day. Uh, and how many people will be taking part in this, Dave? Hard to know. You don't really know until it's all over. But from our, our area, which is the Two Bays region, we know we've got at least four of our team, our, our dedicated observers, out today, including myself. Um, so we'll be out on different headlands between Pyramid Rock or Anzacs on Phillip Island right through to Portsea Back Beach. What are some other good spots that people can go, Dave? Well, if you, if you ask me, and, and you did, <laughs> the best spot is Cape Shank. Uh, by, by far, the Cape Shank is just great. It's a beautiful place to go and have a picnic. It's picturesque regardless of whales passing or not. And the whales tend to pass fairly close to headlands that point to the south. So um, in the case of Cape Shank, you're sticking a fair way out compared to the rest of the coast. So there's a fairly good chance you'll see whales sort of within that 500 metre distance of shore. 
So what happens to all the data that are collected, Dave, once – so you, you go out there, you have a look, you, you do your sightings and record your observations, send them into ORCA. What do they do with them after that? Um, that's their annual census. So it, they basically, from my understanding, they are comparing year to year, looking for any indicators of increase or decrease in whales um, passing along the coastline. Now, there's a whole lot of variables that are going to be involved in that, and we all know that weather is the biggest one. Um, so a lot of sites will be influenced by weather. Some sites won't. Um, and depending on where people choose to stand, as long as there's previous year's data, they've got some comparative information. So, so far, they are seeing an increase in humpback whale movements. Um, they don't just count humpback whales. There's also minke whales, blue whales, uh, killer whales and southern right whales, as well as a whole host of dolphin species. And, and are people supposed to kind of uh, take photos or are they identifying? Because I don't know if I would know a minke whale if I saw one, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, look, validation is a very important point. It's a, uh, Particularly for us here in Two Bays region, we are very stringent on that. We, we need to see photos from sources that aren't part of our uh, initial, or I guess, um, uh, core team, if you like. So photos are a real great way of validating information, not only the event happened, but also what species it is in case there's any sort of confusion. Because we also have these weird whales called Brutus whales and say whales, which all look alike, uh, particularly from distance. So photos are really important for that. And, and yeah, you're right, um, um, it, it's a really, really important thing. It's, that's across the board. It's not just for whales. It's, it's great for things like intertidal zones and um, bird surveys. Um, it's great. And everybody's got a camera in their pocket these days, so why not? Yeah, exactly right. Now, since we last caught up, we'll get on to bubble net feeding in just a sec. Um, but since we last caught up last weekend, um, I believe heaps has happened, Dave. And I, when I say I believe, I know this because you told me. So let's tell everybody <laughs> listening. Um, a rare humpback calf. Tell us about this. This is great. Yeah, fantastic news. I mean, we say it's fantastic news, but they're being born in the wrong spot. <laughs> so um, every so often here in, in Victoria uh, at this latitude, at this time of year, we, we get to see one, well, I'm going to say one, calf every few years. Um, and when we say calf, we don't mean last year's calf, we mean this year's calf. So one has been born in recent weeks. Um, the last time this happened was in 2018 when uh, the Dolphin Research Institute were out surveying off Cape Woolamai and a humpback whale, not much bigger than a bottlenose dolphin, was right next to its mum, uh, just off the cape there. We actually thought it was a dolphin accompanying the whale. And once we got closer, we realised, uh-oh, we need to back off and give these guys some space because that's a brand-new-born humpback whale. Um, so recently, um, as recently as last weekend, a photograph was taken off um, Wilson's Prom, just near Answer Island Group. And those photos were submitted to the Two Bays Project because... Everybody likes the two-phase project, it seems, and even stuff from outside our region comes in, which is very helpful. And uh, when we had a look at these photos, we thought, wow, that's a small humpback whale. And as it turns out, with the description and further photographs, we're able to confirm it's this year's calf. So a really remarkable event, not realised by the people on board at the time, um, but uh, that'll go into our data set as the fourth, only the fourth newborn humpback whale in our waters since we've been keeping records. Oh, that's so amazing. And are those humpback whale calves uh, expected to swim with the mothers immediately? Because I know, for example, in Warrnambool, you can see the whale nurseries for the southern southern right whales, and they seem to hang out there for a while until their calf is big enough, right? So is it different for humpback whales? Yeah, look, ideally the humpback whale calves will be born in the in the calving grounds up into the uh, sort of those lower latitudes up around Queensland and in the South Pacific and places like that and uh, off Exmouth. So they can afford to sort of just hang out, as you say, farm, just like the southern rights do. 
But um, when they're born down here, there's not much known about what happens, the survivorship or whether they even go to the full extent of the migration, given that they've now got this little, you know, one to two ton baby in tow. Um, it's a little bit uh, of a mystery at this point in time. So it'd be really interesting to try and understand how that sort of resolves itself over time. So, uh, yeah, you're right. They should be just hanging out. But uh, unfortunately, the baby came early, which they sometimes do. <laughs> now, let's get to uh, bubble net feeding. I've been reading up on this in the last couple of days. This is amazing phenomenon. Let's get straight into it. What is bubble net feeding? Bubble net feeding is quite often a cooperative event between humpback whales. Um, It can happen singularly as well, where a humpback whale will dive to a depth below where it's identified a prey uh, patch to be and essentially do a circle or even a um, P-shaped bubble trail which forms uh, a net as those bubbles rise to the surface at different intervals because, of course, as they're coming up there towards the surface, the distance between the surface and the release of the bubbles shortens. So you get this wall of bubbles, a curtain if you like. The prey doesn't escape or can't escape it seems and the whale simply comes up through the middle with its huge mouth open and it distends its pleats and takes in about, oh, you have to say there'd have to be a thousand litres of water or so in there and uh, and all the prey with it. So it's a really fantastic way of feeding and, and really in the past it's only been recognised from the northern hemisphere and then a little bit later down on the Antarctic Peninsula. But for the first time, we've documented it here in Australia. When I say we, I mean citizen scientists, again, um, have documented it here on the east coast of Australia in Tasmania and also off Eden in New South Wales. Fantastic. And we wish we had the ID photos for that individual to see if it was the same one doing it at different locations or if somehow there's been some education and culture exchange and that information about bubble net feeding is now moving through the population. We'll have to wait and see. Wow, that's fascinating, Dave. And and when you say citizen scientists observed this, were they on a on a boat or or were they diving? We had a range of uh, sources. The uh, first and foremost, we had our uh, friends at, in Eden, Catbalu Cruises, um, document some bubble, bubble net feeding. Uh, another organisation on that on the same bit of coast also saw it and took some photos. And then down in Tasmania, um, some very um, vigilant and excellent citizen scientists who contribute regularly to the killer whale database um, managed to put a drone up and film the bubble net feeding and it's quite remarkable to see what what it's like to from the air particularly. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page, Dave, because that's what I was watching last night was the, the drone footage and we're not obviously encouraging people to go and start flying drones over sightings of whales. But the fact that this has been done, and I'm sure they've done it within the, the boundaries of whatever regulations there are there, um, amazing footage and it's exactly what you've just described it's like they create a net out of bubbles and it's kind of like they're blowing smoke rings underwater yeah and the bubbles would get bigger as they move up to the surface as well so yeah yeah and then then they come and and have a good feed so amazing that's great Dave and and this has all been documented in a paper that you've had published yeah, the paper is a bit of a, a, a co-authorship between several of my colleagues. Um, um, my, the lead author is Vanessa Perotta. Um, we collected a lot of data. I was initially going to be on um, what we call humpback whale supergroups. So that's groups of 20 or more humpback whales feeding together. Um, and we were getting documentation and, and observations of you know, 50, 60, 70 animals, 90 animals together uh, in a relatively small patch. And I myself witnessed this off Lock Sport. Um, these animals in huge groups, which was only previously de- uh, 
recorded from South Africa about three years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's the first time we've seen these, what, what they're now terming supergroups. So initially we were documenting that and trying to write that up and then realised that this bubble net feeding was also happening. So kind of give a mixed bag paper there and uh, we're, we're pleased to be able to get it out and get that information available to anybody who need, who wants it. That's great. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. I've got a bit of Facebook linking to do. Yes. <laughs> and one last plug, Dave. Uh, next weekend is the Island Whale Festival. Um, do you want to give a quick plug to that one? Yeah, the Island Whale Festival is back after having 2020 off with COVID. Um, there are some differences about this year, of course, with different restrictions uh, involved, but we will be mostly based out of the um, uh, the Nobby Centre and also the Penguin Parade area. Um, all the uh, all the information is available on the Island Whale Festival website, and uh, we'd love to see lots and lots of people down there because there's some great activities happening. Uh, there'll be scientific debate, discussion, there'll be careers day opportunities, presentations on photography, um, obviously whale cruises, spotter whale sessions will be back and running. So we're, we're really excited to have it back and we're just hopeful that people will be able to make it down and, and enjoy what is a really remarkable time of year on, on Phillip Island. And will there be uh, another smoking ceremony to open it as well, Dave? Because I, I was there a few years ago and it was one of the most wonderful smoking ceremonies I've ever been to. It was incredible. Yeah, so the um, Indigenous involvement um, down there is, is uh, a centrepiece. It's the whole it, the whole festival is opened with a smoking ceremony, welcome to country, etc. And then there's uh, all sorts of other activities throughout the course of the festival, which are linked to the traditional owners of the region, the Boonarong folk. Fantastic! I learned a whale dance. It was good fun. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> good on your farm. You'll have to demonstrate one time. Maybe we can put the, that link on the Facebook page. <laughs> we'll film it and put it up, especially for oh, everyone. Thanks heaps, Dave. Um, um, good luck this afternoon with the orca census, the whale census, and um, we'll uh, we'll catch up with you soon and find out how that all went. Good on you. Thanks, ladies. Appreciate the time on, on, on air today. Brilliant. Thanks, Dave. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye for now. Dave Donnelly from Kilowells, Australia, Dolphin Research Institute, out there doing good work with orca today. So much going on there. There is. Triple R is where you are. It's spot on 9.30. And without further ado, we're going to cross to speak with Jackie Younger to find out what's going on with spider crabs. Good morning, Jackie. Morning, Bron. Morning, Farm. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. A bit chilly, but good. Yes. Sun's just come out down in Dramana. Oh, very nice. So you're down in Dramana? I am in Dramana today. Yeah. It's just lovely. Excellent. Now, last week we had you on the show. We uh, we were really kind of picking uh, this week that's just gone and today in particular as a kind of D-Day for the spider crabs of Melbourne. Everything was set, water temperature, the full moon. Have we had them show up? Uh, you know, water temperature's perfect, full moon's just passed. We have not seen them in their usual places in the shallows. I've had no reports, um, particularly on this side. Um Something of interest is, look, we've had quite a few reports come in that they have been seen in about four to eight metres in their aggregations molting, so aggregating and molting. So they are definitely um, not too far away from the shore, but they're not coming into their usual spots. Uh, another report was that they'd been seen in fairly shallow water over at uh, Queenscliff. So then it's really unusual. It could be, look... It could be a natural pattern, it could be a natural shift, but it is really unusual to not see them in any of the usual spots. Have they ever missed years before? Look, Farm, that's one of the that's a really interesting question and that's something we're gonna look at. Look, never say never, they could still come in. The water temperature's thirteen degrees. They could come in. They're they're, they're officially late to the party. 
Um, we are going to start reaching out to people to give us their stories of, of how long they've been diving or snorkelling or walking on the pier and is there years they can remember. It's anecdotal evidence, but we have to start somewhere. I do not know of a year that they have not come in. I've never heard of this before. Yeah, because the, the BBC documentary that was done was a, quite a few years ago and by that stage it was a well-established phenomenon. So this probably really yeah, is the I first think was year. 2018. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I remember, look, 15 years ago, walking along right here, seeing them as far as you could see. Um, you know, they shifted. They, they were in Blair Gary for four or five years. Look, there's different pockets of aggregations throughout the bay. But as we've talked about before, and it's really important if people are, you know, people can scoff at, um, oh, no, they haven't learned by, adapted to the behaviour of what's happened for the last couple of years. But we can't say for sure. And that is the point. We cannot say that this that the, what's been happening at the piers the last few years has not had an effect on these populations. We don't know that they're not. There may be small local populations coming back to the same spot. We do not know. That is, that is something that we need to find out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because that's kind of the elephant in the room, isn't it? Absolutely the elephant in the room. And that's, this is what we said from the, from the start. We need more science into these species to figure out where they're going. Where are they local aggregations? Can we fish out these aggregations but you know what I've, what I have to say is it's really interesting but you know it is such a shame for the hundreds to thousands of people that that have come to see them every year that they don't get to see them this year not everyone owns a boat um, so that that to me is it, it's a bit sad never say never they may come in in July but um, it's a really interesting year on so many levels well, let's stay in touch, Jackie, um, over the next few weeks. Uh, there is Absolutely. one, As you said, there's one more full moon coming up in a few weeks and, and after that, I guess, that's that's their last potential opportunity yeah. for us to, you know... Look, you're, and you're right, Rod, and, you know, people have been reporting, you know, four or five crabs in at Ripe here. You know, it's just unusual behaviour and I've never seen them even throughout the year when they're not in their normal aggregations. Even not during peak, we tend to see more of them, so... Yeah, we'll definitely stay in touch and I'll let you know as soon as we hear anything. Yeah, good one. Thanks, Jackie. Always a pleasure. No problem. We'll catch up with you soon. Speak to you soon. Bye. Okay, bye. Jackie Younger there from Save Our Spider Crabs it campaign. Is kind, it is kind of heartening that they have been observed molting and aggregating in other parts of the bay. Mm. So that kind of gives me a little bit of hope yeah, that, me that they're going to be okay. Do you think, why are they not coming in? Now, last Monday, 21st of June, marked winter solstice. It's the shortest day of the year. And while June 21 is a date that many of us acknowledge each year, it's a particularly significant turning point for the men and women who are maintaining our Antarctic research bases at Casey, Davis and Mawson stations, getting past that shortest day of the year, knowing that longer days and kinder weather are on their way. For them, it's a day that's marked with celebration and a mind-blowing initiation. So to find out more about it, let's now cross to Casey Station in Antarctica Live to Welcome back our Antarctic correspondent Cliff Davis and meet Maddie Ovens, Casey's Senior Field Training Officer, to see what the, initially Cliff's been up to since April when we last spoke and talk about midwinter, what it means for the winter is at Casey and the celebrations over the past week. Good morning, Cliff. Welcome back to Triple R. G'day, guys. Yay. Can you hear me all right there? We can. And uh, big, big ups and props to Kent, who um, I think sweated some bricks trying to make sure we could get you guys on. And good morning, Maddie. Welcome to Triple R. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to great to have you both with us. Um, Cliff, let's start with you. We caught up with you back in April, as I mentioned. It's 10 weeks down the track now. Um, can you talk us through what you've been up to since then and how it's been heading into winter? I've been busy. Uh, the way I sort of say it, I think about it, time's flown by. Can't believe it's that long since we've chatted. So that's a good sign. I've been busy. I haven't been playing with broken poo pipes or <laughs> dealing with. So that's a good thing. <laughs> I can't believe it's been ten weeks either. I went back through, you know, through yeah. through my show archives, and I'm like, wow, it's been ten weeks. That's such a long time. It hasn't felt that long for us because, of course, you send us our um our Antarctica weather reports, and Casey Station in particular, every week. So we feel like it's been a week a week by week connection that we've had with you. But yeah, yeah. ten weeks since we've had you on the show. Uh, Hey, what's, what is the weather looking yeah, like be- today? We didn't do that this morning. Oh, well, I'll get Maddie to read it out for you. I think we've got it here. Google, but this, that I can't see without my glasses. All right. The, the co-pilot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah. yeah. Actually, we've got, the, we've got a bit of weather today, actually. So um, yeah. right now we've got 29 knots of wind uh, gusting up a bit higher and just done a minus 15 air temperature. Um, but we're expecting the wind to keep increasing all day. So I think we've got a blizz on the way. There was possibly up to um, 60 to 80 knots of wind coming by this afternoon and this evening. So that's pretty exciting. For us. <laughs> so much for my strong wind warning in the news for Gippsland this morning. <laughs> I know. We're feeling very lame here. <laughs> you're, 15 you below, <laughs> you're 15 below zero. We're 15 above and we reckon it's cold here. Well, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Speak for yourself. It's all relative, isn't it? Um Maddie, it's fantastic to have you with us. And last time Cliff was on, we talked about his role as Casey's BMW, which is Boilermaker Welder. And you're the senior training officer at Casey. What does your role involve? What do you do there? Um, my role is fair, well, reasonably broad, I guess. I find it hard to sort of um, describe it in a little nutshell. But but basically I think about it in terms of most time or uh, my primary role is in delivering field training so all of the expeditioners that come down south they uh, go through a sort of progressive progressive um, field training program and that's taking them off station we go out we stay in huts or stay in tents they spend nights out in their bivvies we look at how to um, keep yourself warm if the wind came up or if they got caught out in bad weather um, how to um, go to ground, as we say, so get into your bivy, how to make yourself an emergency meal, all that sort of stuff, how to navigate. Um, so that sort of uh, leads into a bunch of other training down the track. could be um, people getting onto the search and rescue team, which I look after as well. And then the rest of the time is sort of spent either in the summer months, we um, have scientists coming down and doing field research, going out with scientists and helping to sort of keep them safe out in the field. Um, and I guess anything that sort of happens off station. So, um, I have a bit of a hand in really, um, safety wise or training wise, or just looking after sort of logistics and that sort of thing. Now I have a burning question because you're training people in these super, uh, extreme circumstances and weather and stuff. Where did you learn those skills? Cause that sounds like a very, very niche <laughs> thing to be specialized in. I learned them in the the mighty Victorian Alps. <laughs> um, I'm an outdoor ed teacher by trade, so um, I, I usually am working with 
school children and university students uh, back at home. And it's, I mean, it, it's the same skills, just in a, a slightly different context, really. So, you know, um, learning how to keep yourself warm is is sort of the same back at home. And as, as you know, 15 above um, zero can feel just as cold um, in wet, windy conditions as 15 below zero in nice and dry conditions like we have down here. Um, so yeah, I, I find there's lots of similarities actually. I was wondering that myself when I came, before I came down the first time, but yeah, I found lots of crossover really. And this is your first winter, Maddie. You've done a summer stint before. How have you found comparing the two? Because Cliff's an old hand, of course. This is your fourth winter. <laughs> yeah. winter. You're an expert. Yeah. That's why the beer fridge is looking so good right now. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're all just blown away by the beer fridge. <laughs> just can't get over the, the beer fridge. The wonders of Antarctica and all the magnificent wildlife and everything that it is, and we can't stop talking about the beer fridge. <laughs> but anyway. We can't either. But back, back to the question, how, how have you found the comparison between the two, so, so summer versus winter? It's the – well, the, the pace is a lot – different um summer is pretty hectic you know we've got these these few months of good sunlight and relatively good weather where we can get out and do a bunch of our work and um do as much the scientists can come and do as much work as they can get done in the summer months so it's kind of it, it's really go 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 and i suppose in some ways it has it has been super busy over winter as well but it's a different sort of pace and of course we've, we've only got 27 of us on station now whereas in the summer months at Casey, at least we can get, you know, up to a hundred people, um, not quite that many this summer, but um, yeah. And, and for us as a group, it sort of changes the dynamic a bit as well, having so few people or relatively few people on station. Um, so that means that your summer solstice celebrations are a lot bigger than your winter solstice celebrations then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are. We still celebrate them with a, with a swim and with a feast, um, but yeah, it is a lot different. Yeah, let's get to the swim because um, this this is this has been the highlight for me seeing some of the photos, and we'll put these on our Facebook page too. So midwinter, which was last Monday, and as I mentioned, something many people realise and recognise at some level, but for you guys, it's a completely different. It's just next level. Um, Cliff, let's uh, let's just get straight into this midwinter swim. You've got chainsaws out. You're cutting holes in the ice. What is going on, yeah. Cliff? Does this happen every year? <laughs> it's, it's serious madness, isn't it? Uh, that's all I could say. You know? And I think they've been doing this since early 1900s down in the Antarctic and sub-Antarctic areas. You know? Total and madness. Is it a bit of an initiation um, where there's an expectation that people who are down there will have a swim? Uh, it's not like crossing the equator or... Um, uh, you know, we go below, when we come into the conversion zone, when you're sailing down, there's a King Neptune thing, similar to what we do on crossing the equator. So no one gets pushed, I suppose. It's not like you have to do it. Yeah. I've done it once. I'm never doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good I'm thing about an initiation. <laughs> you only have to do it once. Yeah. <laughs> and Maddie, I understand you did it for the first time this week. Yep, yep, yeah, I've done the summer swim before, but never through the ice. Uh, yeah, it was super, very unique. <laughs> yeah, and just amazing. Can you talk us through the build-up to it? So um, I mentioned Chainsaws Cliff. Did 
um, so there's literally chainsaws out. You're cutting a massive big hole in the ice. There's there's a bit of a runway that's set up. It's almost <laughs> like I'm picturing it almost like a red carpet, but it's green. And is it a slippery slide, or is that too much? Oh, is it slippery? Good question. <laughs> Yeah, around the ice. Sorry, it is. It is a bit, and <laughs> yeah. normally we have to. Um, Maddie would be making us put on our boot chains, or suggesting we put it on, but uh, with a bit of the green carpet there. Yeah, it's, um, it's, and of course you're in charge of safety, Maddie. So this is this <laughs> yeah, is how does that work? This for is you? yeah. How does that work? <laughs> I palmed a bit of the um, responsibility off onto the station doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So no, people are people. There's a, there's a good lead up. People are pretty keen to you know do the right thing, and everyone has everyone has a good time. Yeah. So talk us through your personal experience because you've done it for the first time, and and I imagine there would have been a fair amount of adrenaline building up before you actually jumped in. How how was the experience for you doing it? Yeah. Well, for, well, for me, I don't know if I'm just a bit wimpy, but for me, I was like the build up was pretty. Um, was pretty cool. Like I thought about it for uh, the months leading up to it every now and again. I'm like, oh, the midwinter swim is going to be, I've seen other people do it and it's going to be one of those things that's, you know, really going to be pretty cool to look forward to. And in the morning, it's pretty busy leading up to it, getting the hole ready and and all the other things we do to get ready for midwinter celebrations is quite busy, pretty go, go, go. And so then all of a sudden we're all down at the hole and, um, and people are starting to get in for their swims and like, you know, there's 27 of us and most of us had a swim. So there's, there's 20 people that have gone before me and I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm going to have to get in soon. Oh my goodness. Oh, you've seen and all then, their faces. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah 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 so yeah when the moment comes everyone we go in one at a time so everyone's kind of the rest of the station is standing around sort of waiting for you to get in and get out and um and get warm so yeah you just have to I mean you strip off and in you get you kind of can't wow. think about it too much and then and yeah. how and how we're not in there for no it's only really a few seconds isn't it how, how was it physically <laughs> when that water when your skin hit that water how did it feel yeah, it's um, it just it's just t- like takes your breath away. Like I'm a um, I'm a surfer, and, and the Victorian winters um, are, is pretty cold. So even with you know five mil of neoprene on, it's it's pretty cold. It's that sort of like the the first moment you duck dive under a wave, it just takes your breath away. It's it's that, but like kicked up maybe maybe like hundred oh, <laughs> percent. And Maddie, do you put your head under? Because this is always what I want to know. Because, you know, when I've had a sauna, I'm from Northern Europe, and after the sauna, you kind of like dunk into a cold bath, but I'm a bit wimpy, so I don't put my head under. Do you put your head under? Yeah, yeah, most people most people did, yes. Oh, that's so I guess hardcore. it's just that. You may as well go the whole hog. <laughs> and then afterwards, um, there's a big feast. You mentioned that before, so the midwinter dinner party. And we're not talking about freeze-dried beans and reconstituted stew here, are we? It's pretty <laughs> impressive. I was wondering, um, can you just talk us through that and maybe a bit of a shout-out to your station cook because she looks like she does a phenomenal job. Well, I have to say it was an amazing spread. I've had three of them now and this is number four. And the hard work the chef's put in is um, – yeah, it's above and beyond. You know, if I was the chef, I'll tell you what, you'd be getting uh, a tin of bully beef and... <laughs> <laughs> Spam. <laughs> you can reenact what Shackleton and Scott had to deal with. Here you go. Penguins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seals. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, our, our, chef, our chef Annette is incredible and all the Antarctic chefs are amazing. Mm. Like they're, 
they're they're people that have that have that are really you know excelled in their field and i think the midwinter um beast is kind of one of the opportunities they get to really show exactly what they can do and and yeah annette was phenomenal this winter yeah great um what have you got planned over the next few weeks we got going on we're going to try and we've been trying in well slightly we've been thwarted for a number of weeks now to get out onto the sea ice and do some sea ice measuring for one of the long-term um science projects that happens on all the antarctic stations over winter which is um yeah measuring the the thickness of the ice and the quality of the sea ice that we get and we have got a fair bit of sea ice around the station uh, at the moment, but we've been having quite windy weather, which is causing the sea ice to keep breaking out and refreezing. So we're hoping to get out, get out and do some more of that um, in the next few weeks. Um, what else we got going on? Oh, it never sort of ends. There's always, I mean, there's some project work, but it, it, Cliff will tell you there's just always stuff that's going on that's that's sort of breaking that we need to fix. Yes. And that's where we sort of hand over to the. Our Cam- cameras are being set up uh, you now, Shirley Island. That's where our closest penguin rookery is, that sort of stuff. I'm trying to finish an automated weather system for Wilkins Runway. That's been a nightmare, but, um, you know, no, no, no weather, yep. no planes are flying there. So, yeah. Yeah. so we're busy. And that's, some, that's like three hours away from where you are, isn't it, Wilkins Runway? What, 70, 80 kilometres? Yeah, yeah, right. Hey, we'll have to move on, but we'd love to catch up with you again. And we've got Radiothon coming up in August. So, um, you know, if not before then, then definitely for Radiothon. But let's try and catch up with you in a few weeks' time. Ocean Grove, she's going to be subscribing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have two most remote subscribers to Triple R. Brilliant. Fantastic. And, um, and uh, any shout-outs for your friends and family just while you're here because I'm sure a few of them are probably listening today. Yeah, a few of them are Ma, Dad and the rest of you lot who are listening. Cheers. Well done. Keep up the good work. Your taxes have been well spent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and Maddie. <laughs> Same to my family huddled around the radio and my, my little nieces, Millie and Ivy, I'll send them a big kiss. Oh. And don't forget to subscribe. Brilliant. <laughs> well, we'll hold off on that. We'll get you back soon and um, and definitely for Radiothon and we'll go from there. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Keep guys. good work. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks for joining us today and thanks, Cliff, for lighting all this up. Fantastic. We'll catch up with you soon. Cheers. Okay, bye for now. Cliff Davis and Maddie Ovens there down at uh, Casey Station in Antarctica, live here on 3 Triple What a thrill. We're going to very quickly now cross to Mel Webb and Kylie Morrigan. Good morning, guys. Morning. Hey, great to have you with us. We've had, a little, we've had a little show reshuffle. Um, we're going to see our show out with you guys today. And oh, so okay. before, we start you, we, before we start you playing, I thought firstly I'm going to just backtrack and, uh, and thank our guests today. So thank you to you guys first before you've even played. Oh, no worries. <laughs> and um, thanks to Cliff Davis and Maddie Ovens who were just on the show. Thanks to Jackie Younger. Thanks to Dave Donnelly. Thank you, Farm. No worries. And thank, thank you. you, Kent, very much. And um, let's get you uh, – let's do a little forward announce for the gig that you've got coming up and um, and then we'll get you to start playing. Excellent. Yeah, well, we're playing at... Uh, at uh, Bar 303. Bar 303. Yeah, Tuesday. in Northcote on Tuesday at 6.30pm. Brilliant. Bring the family. <laughs> Fantastic. And what are you going to... What was that? Sorry? 
Uh, fantastic. Yeah, we're, we're going to play a little song called Pod. It's got nothing to do with uh, groups of cetaceans. It's actually about uh, different seed pods that uh, precipitated by me suddenly realizing I'd never seen a cashew shell. And oh, wow, that's weird. So for those people who've never seen a cashew shell, here's a little song for you. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, feel free to fade us out because I think we'll have to. Anyway. We'll get you back on soon. Sweet. Love your work. See ya. My dad found it appalling and odd When his students didn't know the peas grew in a pot Not a can on a shelf, nor a bag in a freezer He helped each teach himself to be a clever geezer Cause they don't know, they don't know what they don't know Till they find it right under their nose Hiding there in plain sight so dad gave them the full bee origin story It was jolly and thrilling, neither boring nor gory But ironically, three decades later, as I ate a carrot pod Dad asked, what's that? And on the other foot, the shoe was shot Ah, you know, you don't know what you don't know You might find it right under your nose Hiding there in plain sight The more that you learn, the more you learn That there's more to learn lurking in turn Hiding there in plain sight well, I was more than 40, I'm not ashamed to tell When it dawned on me, I'd never seen a cashew shell So I solved the full cashew origin story Of that Brazilian tree fruit in all its orangey glory But it's crazy not cases, internal fluids infernal And in turn returns the yield of but a solitary kernel So, yep, I know, I don't know, but I don't know I might find it right under my nose, hiding there the more that you learn, the more you learn that there's more to learn, lurking in turn, hiding there in place. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.